So here's some exciting news. The On Being Saturday morning email newsletter is back. Curated by our wonderful colleague Kristen Lynn, The Pause is an offering towards the common life we hope to embolden and accompany. Our way of living the questions with you while also providing food for reflection and conversation. You'll receive updates on our latest conversations, writings and poetry from our blog, invitations to live events, and other news and musings. Subscribe now at onbeing.org slash thepause. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives. A powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Elizabeth Gilbert's name is synonymous with her fantastically best-selling memoir, Eat, Pray, Love. But she started out writing for publications by men and for men. Eat, Pray, Love was born of a moment of total collapse in her life. And you can call it chiclet, but it's inspired millions to move forward with their lives differently. Through the disorienting process of becoming a global celebrity, Elizabeth Gilbert has reflected deeply on the gift and challenge of creativity. She defines creativity in life as in art as choosing the path of curiosity over the path of fear. This has resonance for our common life, too. And she says it's not to be confused with the more familiar trope to follow your passion. I think curiosity is our friend that teaches us how to become ourselves. And it's a very gentle friend and a very forgiving friend and a very constant one. Passion is not so constant, not so gentle, not so forgiving, and sometimes not so available, you know. Um, and so when we live in a world that has come to fetishize passion above all, there's a great deal of pressure around that. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Elizabeth Gilbert has written widely in her career from the New York Times to O Magazine to GQ. She's published seven books, including, most recently, Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear. She grew up on a small, working family Christmas tree farm in Litchfield, Connecticut. I spoke with her in 2016. So I kind of resisted in interviewing you earlier because there was a time when, you know, Eat, Pray, Love was everywhere. Mm. And what I've been so interested in is watching this evolution and development of you into, through, and beyond that. And so watching how you're processing that and how you're articulating what you're learning about life and kind of inhabiting this role you have in people's lives, right, whether you ask for it or not. And so much of that uh, coalesces around this idea of what it means to be creative and I think kind of demystifying that and then like but then so on the one hand demystifying creativity what did you say what's your definition a creative living uh is choosing uh the path of curiosity over the path of fear which is pretty straightforward yeah <laughs> yeah but, but also yeah. using the language of magic right in your in your latest yeah. book big magic so so on the one hand demystifying and on the one hand revealing it as magic but kind of everyday attainable magic Practical magic, uh-huh. <laughs> I think, is there's even a thing such as that, isn't there? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I do think that just because something is mystical doesn't mean it shouldn't also be demystified. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe it's the mystical things that we need to demystify the most in order to lay claim to them, right? And to not keep thinking of them as something that only belongs to a very special class of people, you know? Um, the more mystical and precious, in a way, that we make creativity and spirituality both, um, the more people get left out of it, yeah. you know? Um, and I think that's a pity and a loss and sometimes even a, a tragedy. So it should be that all are invited or else what are we even doing here? Yeah. You know? Just starting to read you on this, it brought back, I mean, I grew up in a very small town in a kind of, what <laughs> feels like a faraway place. I mean, um, and I wonder, actually, if a lot of people had this experience, and I always thought it was so, you know, singular to me, that I, I was fascinated with the whole idea of creativity, but it was it was almost more like a longing than a fascination, mm-hmm. and it, I wanted to understand it, and I wanted to be it, but mm-hmm. I saw it as something 
that was was somewhere out there in the world in other people, right? And that you had to be, right. you know, in some special way gifted, in some special way original, you know, an artist. And that didn't feel attainable to me or to describe me. And I, I it seems like people are coming, a lot of people come to you with precisely that longing and feeling of being left out of the experience of creativity. Yeah. Um, most people are left out of it, um, which is not even the right way to say it. Most people are cast out of it hmm. um, because I think it's innate. And I think the evidence that it's innate is pretty airtight. <laughs> um, and that evidence is multifold, but, but here's some pieces of it. One, all of your ancestors were creative. <laughs> um, all of them, you and I and you know everybody we know were descended from tens of thousands of years of makers. Um, mm. The entire world, for better or for worse, has been altered by the human hand, um, by human beings doing this weird and irrational thing that we only we do amongst all our peers in the animal world, which is to waste our time <laughs> um, making things that nobody needs, making things a little more beautiful than they have to be, altering things, changing things, building things, um, composing things, shaping things. This is what we do. We're the making ape. Mm-hmm. And and no one is left out of the inheritance of that. That's our shared human inheritance. And the, you know another really strong piece of evidence is that every human child is born doing this stuff innately. It's an instinct. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, there's, there's, there's no child that you put crayons and paper in front of who doesn't you know, get it, what you're supposed to do. Um, they, you know, no four-year-old boy was ever you know, set in front of a pile of Legos and said, I don't know, I'm just, I'm not feeling it. <laughs> Right. You know, I'm not, you know, I don't know if I can ever do a Lego. Right, or I'm not a Lego as, master, so I won't know, even try. I'm not as good. Or like right. last week I did one that's so good, I don't know if I can ever do <laughs> right. another good right. one. Um, and I right. think what, what we find often happens is that most people that I talk to can usually pinpoint with quite specific accuracy moments in their lives where certain artistic ven- like expressions were taken away from them, uh, where suddenly they were informed that they were not a good singer um, or that yeah. they couldn't dance or that yeah. they couldn't draw. And there's usually some shaming around it, um, often some public shaming. Somebody decides along the way that, well, no, Heather is the creative one. Yeah. <laughs> Joshua is the creative one. She's good at music. He's a good artist. And you get pushed out of it in a way. Um, and the other weird side effect of that is that those special kids who get shunted into this into the category of being artistic or yeah. quote unquote creative, they often become neurotic basket cases because <laughs> it's a great deal of pressure to put upon two kids out of a hundred to say you're the special one. Now go deliver unto us our artistic dreams that nobody else is allowed to well, do. Well, right, and, you know, and it, it also crazy. does have that. You're right. Even when we cultivate and celebrate that. It has an effect mm. of separating it out from everybody else, and it, it becomes something that only special people do. And it becomes something that is not part of you and part of your daily life. Yes. It's, yeah. it's not embroidered within you. It's not natural to yeah. you. It's some artificial thing that you then have to get very expensive training in. Yeah. Um, and then you have to immediately start worrying about whether you can make a career out of this and whether you can make money out of this and whether you'll get a claim from this and whether you can continue to be recognized for this. And all of that is a very strange way to see creativity. And I would say a very new way, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and by new, I mean, you know, post-enlightenment, um, you know, last couple hundred years and very Western. And I would also say very macho in a way, um, very male, because it comes with this grandiosity um, mm-hmm. that's on the individual and this pressure to be great and to be a genius. And also that it has to have some strange. kind of quantifiable demonstrable value right <laughs> that is defined in certain kind of linear ways what value is yeah so so i mean i think i think one thing and i think you also it took you a little while to come to this i mean one thing that you have started to say that is really helpful is um, that you've started to see the danger of this refrain that's everywhere out there in our culture to follow your passion, follow your passion. And that that also becomes a way that people feel themselves excluded because they're not sure what their artistic passion would be. Or again, if it's their passion, you know, can they really measure the value they're creating? And I love the language of curiosities. And I'd love for you to talk some more about that. I mean, one thing you've said is... uh, the difference between passion and curiosity as something you're following is that curiosity is a milder, quieter, more welcoming, and more democratic entity. (laughs) (laughs) 
oh, I love curiosity, our friend, you know. I mean, I think curiosity is our friend that teaches us how to become ourselves. And it's a very gentle friend and a very forgiving friend and a very constant one. Passion is not so constant, not so gentle, not so forgiving, and sometimes not so available, you know. Um, And so when we live in a world that has come to fetishize passion above all, there's a great deal of pressure around that. And I think um, if you don't happen to have a passion that's very clear, or if you have lost your passion, or if you're in a change of life where your passions are shifting, or you're not certain, and somebody says, well, it's easy to solve your life, just follow your passion. (laughs) You know, I, I, I do think that they have harmed you, you know, um, because it just makes people feel more excluded um, and and more exiled and sometimes like a failure. Yes, um, exactly. And it's a little bit like, gosh, I mean, even the word passion has this sort of sexual connotation that you're, you know, there's, I'm much more interested in intimacy and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and in growing a relationship than everything has to be setting your head on fire. Um, and curiosity is an impulse that just taps you on the shoulder very lightly and invites you to turn your head a quarter of an inch and look a little closer at something that has intrigued you. And it may not set your head on fire. It may not change your life. It may not change the world. It may not even line up with previous things that you've done or been interested in. It may it may seem very random and make no sense. And I think the reason people end up not following their curiosity is because they're waiting for a bigger sign, you know, um, and your curiosities sometimes are so mild and so strange mm-hmm. and um, and so almost nothing, right? It's a little trail of breadcrumbs that you can overlook if you're looking up at the mountaintop waiting for Moses to come down um, and give you a sign from God. Yeah, you know? um, right. He says it gives you curiosity, it gives you clues. It's clues. <laughs> doesn't necessarily and... give you a destination at all, right? <laughs> it doesn't. And, yeah. and here's the thing. Sometimes following your curiosity will lead you to your passion Sometimes it won't. And then guess what? That's still totally fine. (laughs) You've lived a life following your curiosity. You've created a life that is a very interesting thing, different from anybody else's. And your life itself then becomes the work of art, not so much contingent upon what you produced, but about a certain spirit of being Mm -hmm. that I think is a lot more interesting and also a lot more sustainable. Yeah, use the language, um, the virtue of inquisitiveness. Yeah. Um, That's great. I think a definition of an interesting person is an interested person. Um, I've never met an interesting person who's not also an interested person. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, exploring creativity and the virtue of curiosity with author Elizabeth Gilbert. phrase that feels pivotal for you as you have thought about a life of creativity and all the manifestations that can take, um, this language of stubborn gladness. (laughs) And you've taken it from a poet who I had never heard of, with whom you share a name, Jack Gilbert. Um, I mean, so here's this, here are these lines of the poet Jack Gilbert. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of the world. <laughs> I just got, uh, I have the word stubborn gladness tattooed on my arm. Do you really? I do, yeah, um, because I think it's everything. <laughs> and the reason I love that poem so much is that, again, he doesn't, deny. I mean, he puts those words, stubbornness and gladness, right inside the phrase about the ruthless furnace yeah. of the world. You know, mm-hmm. He doesn't pretend. I know the first line of that poem is suffering everywhere, right? Um, mm. It's the first line, suffering everywhere. Look, it's everywhere. There's no denial of that. And yet, you know, something in us, something in the universe, there's some sort of spirit that also wants to be glad and also wants to be amazed and also wants to be engaged. And we can't lose that um, because then we've lost everything. He has another line in there, which I 
don't know if I know by heart, but it's something about to to only give your attention to to darkness and suffering is to worship the devil or to give mm-hmm. your power to the devil. Um, and, you know, you have to be careful about this, especially when you have an impulse to be a good person, a quote-unquote good person. Um, and your definition of a good person is, is somebody who gives everything to others. Um, it's a beautiful impulse, but if it's done from a place of of only giving darkness and suffering your attention, then you become somebody who's very difficult to be around. Yes. <laughs> you know, there's a, a lovely line that this British columnist said one time that you can always tell people who live for others by the anguished expressions on the faces of the others. <laughs> you know, there's some heaviness hmm. in there that just spreads out of you and makes everyone feel heavy and even makes the people that you're serving feel heavy because they feel like they're a burden and a responsibility. And and so if you can find the gladness and the lightness, I think your service becomes better and I think your art becomes better and I think um, I think your worship becomes better and lighter. And I think there is that dynamic, that dialectic in the way you approach your creative process and, you know, holding those things in a creative tension, the gladness and the furnace, our stubborn gladness against the world's ruthless furnace. And that kind of is a way to talk about, to get into the kind of very mysterious process of creation. I mean, you when you talk about how you write, like when you're writing, I think you say you don't write every day. Well, who was it, Graham Greene, that always wrote 500 words a day? Was it 500 words, 1,000 yeah. words a day? Like, I, I don't know, yeah. for years I thought, well, if I'm not yeah. writing my 500 words, because I've got anybody should be able to do If I can't do that, then I'm not writing. Yeah. I never write. But you said you don't write every day. You write by season. Yeah. You, you write book by book. But when you're writing, you're kind of back on the Christmas tree farm, right? I mean, you are getting up early and going to work and yeah. taking care of really granular things about your well-being and the I mean talk a little bit about that yeah um, the Christmas tree farm is a great metaphor and I think one of the reasons that both my sister and I ended up being being authors is because we were taught how to do boring things for a long time (laughs) you know and I think that's really important because here is one of the grand misconceptions about creativity and when people dream of quitting their boring job so that they can have a creative life, one of the risks of great disappointment is the realization that, oh, this is also a boring job. <laughs> um, a lot of the yeah. time, it's certainly tedious. I mean, I would ra- it's a boring job I would rather do than any other boring job. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the most interesting boring job I've, I've ever had. Um, but <laughs> but <my> every, <laughs> every job has boring in it, right? Yes, yes. I mean, I have a theory that I'm just growing and I haven't really put a roof on it, but I'll throw it out there, which is that everything that is interesting is 90% boring. Yeah, um, that's right. And we are sort of in a culture that's addicted to the good part, right? Mm-hmm. The exciting part, the fun mm-hmm. part, the, the, the reward. But every single thing that I think is fascinating is mostly boring. So marriage... I mean, good Lord, can there be anything more fascinating than joining two souls together in union and to spend a life entwined? 90% boring. But then there's, then there's like the reason right. why there's that thing that happens, you know, even 10, 20 years in where suddenly you're like, we never would have done this had we not stayed through everything. Raising children. I mean, I, I'm not a mother, but I'm a stepmother. I'm a godmother. I'm an aunt. And I know yeah. that 90% of especially being with very small children. Well, I mean, it's hard labor, right? Incredibly, I mean, it's, just, it's hard. Yeah. And then there's the moment where you realize, oh my God, this is a spark of creation that I'm mm-hmm. that I'm working with, and this is magic, and this is life seen through new eyes. And creativity is the same, where ninety percent of the work is quite tedious. And if you can stick through those parts, you know, not rush through the experiences of life that have the most possibility of transforming you, um, but to stay with it until the moment of transformation comes and then through that to the other side, then very interesting things will start to happen within very boring frameworks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but those, but somehow, and, uh, you know, for, for some of us, this just comes with practice. I mean, you just experience it so much. I think it's, it's hard to talk to younger people about this, for them to believe you, but that how many of those moments along the way to that, something that you'll be able to say this was transformative, they don't feel transformative at all, right? They feel no. They they can feel messy. They can feel awful. They can feel like failure. Yeah. And somehow you have to trust that those can also be places on right. the way. Yeah. Well, trust is a big piece of it, isn't it? 
and and I think motion is a big piece of it. You mm-hmm. know, I I've learned to give myself all the credit in the world simply for being in motion. Um, mm. Did you do something today toward this thing? Then you're good. <laughs> you know? Was it was it great? <laughs> no. Was it fun? No. Did you? But did you do it? Did you keep the ball rolling? Did you keep another step on that path going? Then you're fine. That's it. I love I love that. Just the the idea of motion itself being a virtue, and because it's real, it's realistic. It's there's nothing cerebral about that. But, you know, do you know that book by Annie Dillard, The Writing Life? Yes, I do. There are these sentences that, that I read there years ago, and I kind of put them in front of myself recently when I was writing this book, which was so painful. And she said, at its best, the sensation of writing is that of any unmerited grace. It is handed to you, but only if you look for it. You search, you break your heart, your back, your brain, and then, and only then, it is handed to you. (laughs) And I thought of that when I was reading, you know, how you go back and forth in Big Magic, especially between, you know, yes, you work like a farmer, and then sometimes there's this fairy dust thing that happens. And it's both and. Both and, yes. Thank you for saying that because I feel like the choice, the false choice, that people are given are these two ideas. One is that it's all coming from me. Nothing funny is going on here. Um, There is no spirit moving across the the face of the earth. Um, I'm just a pile of DNA. My cerebral cortex is firing off, and that is why my creativity exists, right? It's all me. It's only me, which is great, except then how do you explain the mysterious part that you can't explain about why one day you were in flow um, and it did feel like something was coming through you, not from you. And you brushed up against a sense of great mystery and communion. And then the next day, Wednesday morning, it was gone. (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, that's just too hard to explain Mm -hmm. in very empirical terms, you know. Um, And then the other other choice you're given is the very hippy-trippy idea of, I'm just a vessel. (laughs) I'm just a vessel. Hey, look, it just comes through me. Then why am Mm -hmm. I so tired? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Because I've been working hard. So there's some sort of a there's some third way. Um, yes, and I think the yeah. third way is it's a collaboration between a human being's labors and the mysteries of inspiration. And that's the most interesting dance that I think you can be involved in. But you are very much an agent in that story. You're not just mm-hmm. a passive receptacle. Um, and also, it's not entirely in your hands. And standing comfortably within that contradiction is, I think, where you find sanity in the creative process, if you can find it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you have this wonderful idea that, I think this is partly the way you said it and partly the way I wrote it down, that our planet is inhabited by ideas, that ideas are part, like, a part of the ecosystem, part of the biosphere, like other living beings, that ideas interact with other animate and inanimate matter. And actually, I think you talk about um, articulating that idea through an experience you had with Ann Patchett. Yeah, um, this is the most magical thing that's ever, and when I say magical, I mean it very much in the Hogwartsian sense of mm-hmm. magical. Um, I had an idea for a novel, and it was to be about a, um, I'll just summarize it very quickly, a, a, a middle-aged spinster from Minnesota who had been working at the same company for 25 years and was quietly in love with her married boss who sort of, you know, she was invisible to him. Um, he gets involved in a very ill-advised scheme down in the Amazon jungle and sends a bunch of money and a person down there and the money and the person disappear. And then he sends her down there to figure out what happens, at which point her orderly life is flipped upside down into chaos. And it's also a love story. And um, I, you know, I, I wrote a, a, a proposal for this novel. I got a book advance for it. I started working on it. I was doing research for it. And then I got waylaid by some other things that were going on in my life and ended up writing a completely different book. And I left it aside. And when I came back a few years later, I found that the life force energy, for lack of a better term, the spirit of that book was no longer there. And around that same time, I met and made friends with the novelist Ann Patchett. And um, we had this very dynamic and exciting meeting where we sort of admitted that we loved each other's work. And, and she gave me a big kiss right on the lips. And and <laughs> we became pen pals and we started writing letters to each other. And about a month later, she wrote me a letter saying she had just started working on a book about the Amazon jungle. And um, 
And I told her, why, well, that's so strange. I had been working on one too, but it's gone. And and then a few months later we met and I, you know, she said, tell me what your Amazon book was about. And now she was a hundred pages into hers. And her book, which of course became the extraordinary novel State of Wonder, mm. was a book about a middle-aged spinster from Minnesota who'd been working <laughs> for the um, for this company for 25 years and had been quietly in love with her married boss, who to whom she was invisible. Um, mm. And it was exactly the same story. And then we did that thing that you know pregnant women do, where they count backwards to figure out when inception <laughs> occurred right? first, right? And so we did the math and it was really at the same time that I had lost mine that she had gotten hers. And we like to think that the idea jumped from my mind to hers during our, our little kiss that we had when we met. Um, that's our magical thinking around it. But it's it's there is no explanation for that um, other than the one that I've always abided by, which is that ideas are conscious and living and they have will and they have great desire to be made and they spin through the cosmos looking for human collaborators. You know, I was thinking I had a conversation with Ro- Roseanne Cash once and she started talking about the process of songwriting and she's using this language like you have to have your catcher's mitt on, right? Similar thing. Oh, isn't that nice? And then, and then she said, actually, I went back and looked at the transcripts and she said, you have to have your catcher's mitt on and sometimes I'm afraid if I don't get it down, then somebody else will. And she said something like, I don't, it, it might be Lucinda. <laughs> Like Lucinda Williams might get this one if I don't, which is exactly the same thing you're saying. Yes, exactly. Um, and, you know, there's um, – look, this exists in the scientific world as well, right? right? Like, right. Um, there are these stories of, of simultaneous discovery. Um, mm-hmm. It's Alfred Russell Wallace and, and Charles Darwin figuring mm-hmm. out um, the theory of evolution at the same moment. You know, it's it, – this is something that we hear happening again and again and – and it's nothing to be afraid of. I mean, I think it's something to just marvel in and be delighted in. If you liked listening to this conversation, consider also subscribing to On Being on Apple Podcasts. It will help other people find the show. And if you're feeling inspired, leave us a review. I love hearing from you. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm talking with the author Elizabeth Gilbert about the nature of creativity. In life as in art, she says, it has less to do with passion than with choosing curiosity over fear. There's also kind of a a noble guilt that one can have in this culture. And, you know, those of us who are fortunate to be able to buy and read books like yours... um, talking about, you know, bringing forth the treasures within us. And I was just like, you know, talking a minute ago about how we also tend to be very focused and, you know, kind of the messaging that's coming towards us very focused on the ruthless furnace of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you respond to the question of, you know, this creativity you're talking about, is, is this a luxury for privileged people? No. Um, this is a shared human inheritance because... The evidence of that is, again, let us look to our ancestors. And I ask you and me right now to think back to our great-grandparents. And they were farmers and workers. And yet they made beauty. Uh, They made it because it brought them joy. They made it as a currency in the communities in which they lived. They made it um, because of the pleasure of doing something that's better than it has to be. You know, so my grandmother who made beautiful rag rugs and quilts – they're more beautiful than they need to be. And your history is filled with those people as well. And I would argue that most of the most beautiful and interesting things in the world that have ever been made were made by people who didn't have enough time, didn't have enough resources, didn't have probably any education. Right. This is something that belongs to human beings who are behaving in the way that human beings are, are designed hmm. to behave, um, using your senses and your curiosity and your materials and whatever's at hand to alter your environment and make something more beautiful than it needs to be. That's who we are. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about how 
the way we have kind of dismissed art and creativity as a luxury is a way we've diminished ourselves. Oh, good Lord. Mm-hmm. In huge ways. Yeah. Without a doubt. I mean, I also feel like you don't make this connection overtly a lot, but I I think that the notion of creative living and amplified existence of creativity as a virtue for our public life as well as for private life is very resonant right now, especially when you define it as, you know, a life driven more by courage than by fear and what grows out of that. Mm. And, you know, say, I want to live in a society filled with people who are curious and concerned about each other rather than afraid of each other. So kind of taking this virtue of investigation, of, a, mm. of, of that gentle friend of curiosity mm-hmm. as something that we can live by would be good for us collectively, right? Sure. It's a public service. <laughs> it's a public, yeah. Right? <laughs> well, I mean, I do think this is a very clear thing. Terrified people make terrible decisions. Mm. You know, um, terror and fear make you irresponsible. They make you not think very clearly, right? And mm-hmm. and they make you willing to do almost anything to get rid of that awful feeling. And and we've seen people do that on the individual level, and we've seen cultures do that. And, and we've seen politicians who find ways to exploit terror and fear in order to um, get short-term power or sometimes long-term power. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it, if you can figure out how to hold the reins of other people's fear, then you can control them for a while. Um, and so one of the very most powerful ways to not end up being controlled by that is to remain more curious than you are afraid. I think any time in the community there's anybody who's keeping their head I think it's a benefit to everyone around them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know everything is contagious. Where um, our fear is contagious, but our courage also is, and our courage makes other people be able to be more brave and come out of their houses and come out of their their shells and and out of their fear. I think in this piece, I'm I'm looking at you. Or you were telling a story about being in Indonesia in 2002, and so when did you publish Eat, Pray, Love? Was that 2006? Yeah, so that trip I was talking about in that article was actually not my Eat, Pray, Love trip. That was a... Um, so that was that another was a, time when your life looked like a dropped pie? Everything was on the floor in pieces? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You've had more than one of those? Well, actually, I would say that that was the middle of the period of okay. my life that looked like a drop pie, and okay. Eat, Pray, Love was the end Got of it. that life. So this this period that I was talking about was very much, I was still in... The worst of what I then ended <laughs> okay. up discussing in Eat, Pray, Love. But yeah, that, okay. would, that was um, Drop Pie Central right then. I would say that right. was the, the worst part of my Bad life. Bad divorce, yeah. losing your house, losing your husband, losing your money, losing your friends, losing sleep, losing yourself. And then this stranger, this woman just kind of gives you solace, nurses you back to life. And, you know, you said, um, and I feel like you've had a lot of those experiences, partly because you've put yourself out there. <laughs> Um, to be needy, to be to be alone in strange places. But you, I just I just love this. I'll, I want to read. It. You said, "I want to live in a world full of explorers and generous souls, rather than people who have voluntarily become prisoners of their own fortresses. I want to live in a world full of people who look into each other's faces along the path of life and ask, who are you, my friend, and how can we serve each other?'" Yeah, that woman was so extraordinary. I had. Um Gone to, I had a very dumb idea, it turned out, <laughs> um, that what I really needed was to just be alone and as far away from everyone in the world as I could get. And I went to this island off the coast of Lombok in Indonesia and rented a, a thatched cottage on the beach for $10 a day. For And I decided for 10 days I wasn't going to speak. Um, I don't advise that if you're in the state that I was in. <laughs> yeah. What I probably really needed was to be around community and maybe some therapists. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, putting putting a magnifying lens on yourself when you're in distress like that can be can be very hard. And I ended up getting sick. And I used to take a walk around this island every day because it was such, such a small island. You could walk it every day. And it was a little Muslim fishing village. And there was this woman who used to be standing outside her house every time I walked by and she would see me and smile at me. And she was the only human to human point of contact that I had during that time. And when I got sick and I was stuck in my little shack, very, very ill. I was afraid I had malaria. I was so sick. Um, She came and found me. She had been keeping an eye on me, and I didn't keep my schedule. I usually walked around the island at dawn and at dusk and 
when she didn't see me, she came and found me. And when she saw how sick she was, she brought me food. Mm. And I think, you know, I've never forgotten this woman. Um, And what I think I learned from her was pay attention to what's happening in your community. (laughs) You know, um, that's what it means to be deeply engaged with the place where you live, you know, such that you will see when someone is in trouble. And, you know, there's ways that you can... You can reach toward people rather than away from them. Mm. And and you can do that. I know we talk often in the society about how terrible social media and the internet is, but used properly, that too can become a tool of, yeah. of outreach, a way of knocking on someone's door. Yeah, we get to make it saying, what we want it to be. We it's, get to make it. It's just us. us. Right. Yeah. Um, and she set a real tone for me of how to be not so buried in your own problems or in your own distractions that you are incapable of seeing what's right in front of you and who's right in front of you. Mm-hmm. It's it's also actually a wonderful example of how when we kind of step outside ourselves, I mean, that was, that was a creative act, right? It was an act of curiosity. Well, it's because the universe is looking for collaborators, you know, because creation's not finished. It's not something that happened in seven days and ended. Um, it's an ongoing story that we're part of. And it's a much more interesting way to be part of that story, to work in collaboration and in partnership and in friendly curiosity with it than to be terrified of it. I mean, look, life is life is a very risky affair. And, you know, what could be more fascinating and terrifying than the, this reality about a human existence, that, which is that literally anything can happen to literally anybody at literally any moment, <laughs> you know, um, and to live in the awareness of that without needing to drown it out or dull it out or suffocate it or deny it is quite an exhilarating way to live. And then you can start to participate as much as possible in how that story unfolds. I don't want to finish talking to you without kind of noting the irony of kind of the trajectory of your career and your, you know, your your persona and success as a writer. Um it was kind of interesting to me. I didn't really understand how much you had really written a lot about men and for men and and been a journalist and, and been, I don't know, what is it you once said, you know, you, you were like the only girl in the room a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and not and so that's not really like the, the, the trajectory of, I think, what people would expect of, you know, this person who eventually writes Eat, Pray, Love. And ironically, that is such a phenomenally successful project. But you said once it it had not escaped your attention that when you wrote about a man's emotional journey, they gave you the National Book Award nomination. <laughs> but when you wrote about a woman's emotional journey, they shunted you into the chiclet dungeon. And I sense that you've – this has been part of your kind of growth and reflection out of this is – and I wrestle with this too um, with my work, like kind of pushing back against the idea – there's something unserious about talking about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, so I just, I would love to draw you out a little bit on that. Yeah, well, I spent my 20s writing about men for men, and I wanted to. And it was very much a reflection of where I was in my life at that time. I was really interested in masculinity, and I think... The reason that I was is because I wanted to be a guy. Um, and the reason I wanted to be a guy, and I don't mean um, literally, and, and, and certainly that's a very serious situation when somebody's yeah, born in a woman's yeah. body and wants to be a man. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm, what I'm talking about is um, I wanted to live the way men live. And the reason for that was because it was better, you know? And I grew up watching what many of us grew up watching, which was men who had a great deal of freedom and women who followed them around and took care of them mm-hmm. and took care of their every need. And when I looked at those two models, one of them seemed a lot better than the other one, yeah. Yeah. Um, very clearly. And so I just threw myself into men's worlds. Um, I worked in in bars. I, I, I worked on a ranch in Wyoming for a long time. I, I became a writer for GQ and Esquire and Spin, very much yeah, men's that's worlds. Right. Yeah. I mean, I threw myself not only mm-hmm. into men's worlds, but into men's worlds where they were they were spending their lives studying what is masculinity too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. Examining that question again and again, what it, what it means to be a man. Um, I was just as interested in that as they were, and I felt comfortable in those worlds. And I mean, I even did a story for GQ once where I dressed up as a man for a week and lived as a man in New York and felt what that felt like, which interestingly I didn't enjoy. Um, 
because I felt very constrained in that gender once I was in it. <laughs> um, right. I much preferred being a woman among men than being um, a, a sort of fake man among men. Um, but what happened, I think, with, with Eat, Pray, Love is that it was a time in my life where I sort of came out of the closet as a woman, you know. Um, and I needed to because um, the questions that I was grappling with were very much women's questions. And, and when there are certainly universal spiritual questions that I was grappling with, but the main one that I was grappling with and what ended my, my marriage was the question of whether or not to become a mother. And certainly that is the sort of ultimate woman's question. Mm-hmm. You know, um, what does it mean if I'm a woman who doesn't have children? What does it mean if I take a different path? Am I still a woman? I mean, these are all in a way, gendered questions. Um, yeah. And and that led me to write Eat, Pray, Love. And although now we can say, God, that just was such a commercial success, it just seems so obvious now. Yeah. At the time, I was taking a very big risk because I quit my excellent job at GQ and I took a very different voice on. And whatever acclaim I had in the world or whatever, however I was known, I was not known as a woman who would write a book like that. Yeah. You know? um, so it felt very risky to do it, but I also didn't really have a choice. Mm -hmm. And I think in the end, it comes down to that. And um, of course, I did get typecast as as a chiclet writer. And and I, that was year zero, like all of a sudden, my whole history disappeared. And I just showed up as that person. Right. Um, And, and I've sort of remained that person, no matter what I do from this point forward, I will still always be the woman who wrote Eat, Pray, Love, which is fine with me. Um, But I'm going to continue to write the books that I'm called to write, I'm going to continue to speak about the questions that ignite and illuminate my existence within myself and in the world. I'm going to continue to serve the community who has gathered around me. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, exploring creativity and curiosity with author Elizabeth Gilbert. I feel one of the paradoxes in your life and in kind of the spirit and presence you bring into the world is you know, you are an explorer. We talked about, you know, you are an explorer, you're a traveler, you're a famous traveler and a famous explorer. Um, I think both literally and also in terms of your life as a writer. I also experience you from, a, from afar, but experience you as someone who is so completely at home in yourself, very exuberantly at home. And you've talked about... Um, in those wild years that follow the success of Eat, Pray, Love, like, you know, that finding your way home, that finding your way mm-hmm. back home, that that, that that was something you understood to be something you had to do. I don't know. I, I just want to name that. And I guess I'm curious if that is a way or how else you, you would want to talk about, like, through all of this that you've lived and created and also your... All the things you're hearing and picking up in the world now as you move through it as this person kind of co- in conversation with our culture, like, what are you learning that you didn't know before about what it means to be human? I think here's what I'm learning and here's what I'm seeing and here's what I'm lately focusing on and yeah. maybe even thinking about writing about. Um, I feel like everything we want is on the other side of this dark river of self-hatred that is so prevalent in ourselves and in our culture. Um, There's a story about the Dalai Lama that when he first came to the West and somebody in the audience raised their hand and said, "Um, what do you think about self-hatred? The whole sort of conference ended for a while while he had to have a couple of translators Mm -hmm. (laughs) sit there Mm -hmm. and try to explain to him how a human being could be taught to hate himself. And he was so, you know, he just said, there's a sort of transcript of his conversation in that moment of him saying, this is very concerning, you know. (laughs) Um, And and I see self-loathing everywhere I look in so many different forms. And it's so, it breaks my heart. And I also know self-loathing because I have been in it. Um, You know, anybody who's been in depression knows what self-hatred is, Um, you know, in many ways, Depression is is the best definition of it is anger turned inward, you know. Um, So there's this battle that's going on within you 
where you become a rival of yourself um, and an enemy of yourself. And what transformed my life about that journey that I took with Eat, Pray, Love were those four months that I spent in India where I had to be alone with myself and we really made a peace accord. You know, um, and when I say myself, I should say myselves, right? Because right. I, I, you know, we're, we're not a self; we're self, yeah. we're selves. Yeah. And you know, one by one, I really went around to all myselves, and we shook hands and made peace with each other. And said, "We're not going to, you know, we're not going to operate against each other anymore." You know, um, this has got to be a better neighborhood to live in. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we have to put down the weapons. We have to put down the old complaints. We have to put down the perfectionism, we have to put down the judge. We have to put this stuff away because we're doing such tremendous harm to this poor being, um, Liz, who has to carry this war around within her, yeah. you know? And and so I really came away from that trip having befriended. Um, and, and the word friendly, I keep using it in this in this conversation, it's and I lovely. Use it a lot. It's lovely. It's a yeah. wonderful word, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's another gentle word, like curiosity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> People talk about self-love, and I think that's a very intimidating yes. concept. I think friendliness is a nicer way to think about it. You know, can you can you be a little bit of a better friend yeah. to yourself? Um, yeah. Would you ever allow a friend to speak of themselves the way you do in your interior moments? You know, and and so that's what changed everything. And even in the craziness after Eat, Pray, Love happened. I think part of the reason that I didn't get lost in that was because of the friendship that I had cultivated with this person who I am and and carrying that person around in a friendly way mm-hmm. <laughs> made those years easier than they might have been. And and so, so sometimes people will say to me, God, your life must have been so crazy after you pray love. And honestly, my thought is, no, the craziness was before. Right, right. Um, the craziness was what you didn't see what was going on in between my ears. You know, that Mm -hmm. was the insanity. And when that's gone, then everything else that happens can be sort of ridden. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, sometimes, as Jack Gilbert would say, you know, enjoyed. Sometimes you can even risk delighting in it. But it's that spirit of of stubborn gladness and, and... and friendly curiosity that I think is at the basis of ahimsa also, right? Um, that you're a friend not only to the world but to yourself. Um, yeah. And there you can find your way home, I think, in almost all circumstances. Mm. I hope because mm. <laughs> I don't know any other way. <laughs> um, and that's the best I've got. <laughs> you know, I, I've lived I've lived a while at this point too and, and uh, I don't think I have self-hatred and I'm, you know, I'm not sure – it's it's hard to identify with that, even though I and I would absolutely define some of my younger self in that way. But I, at the same time, you know, you have this line, and this is again about emboldening creativity, creative living. You know, this way we can move through the world. And you say is kind of coming to the point where you can decide that the work wants to be made, and it wants to be made through you. And, you know, I just say, even as somebody who who feels like I've done a lot of work on befriending myself, but that's still a hard statement to claim, you know, for me and I think for a lot of people. It's an aspiration to, to be able to feel that way, to trust that. You know, what gets me through those 90% of it being boring part of creativity without turning it into angst anymore, and I say anymore because mm-hmm. I used to do it, is that faith that the work wants to be made and it wants to be made through me. And so when it's not coming and it's not working and it's not being good and, mm-hmm. and I don't, and I'm stuck in a, in a problem around the creativity, it's a very important shift in my life over the years to not think that I'm being punished or that I'm failing, but to think that this thing, this mystery that wants communion with me is trying to help me. And it's hasn't abandoned me. It's nearby, and it wants it. It came to me for a reason. That's what I always think when I'm working on a project and it's not working. I think I I will speak to the idea and say, "You came to me for a reason." Hmm. But in the meantime, I'll come to my desk every day with the faith that you are also at my desk every day, Um, and that the two of us, this human being who is laboring, and this mystery who's presenting itself toward me in whatever language it's able to, whatever signals and clues and, and hints and, and um, inspirations and, and the sense of obsession and all, all the ways that inspiration comes to us, that it wants me to be with it 
And somehow, if I'm patient and it's constant, the two of us, the idea and me, will figure out how to make something in the world. And, and through that process, I will become a deeper and truer version of myself. And so regardless of how the outcome turns, it will have been worth doing just for the communion with the mystery and the idea. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of a better way to live than to just keep doing that. Elizabeth Gilbert is the author of seven books, including Eat, Pray, Love, the novel The Signature of All Things, and most recently, Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear. On Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lynn, Prophet Adewu, Kaspatek Kyle, Sue Phillips, and Jeffrey Basoy. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at HumanityUnited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production. Ah.